Living Stones is our discipleship pathway we use to bring people to faith, grow people in the faith and their life, and how we raise up new leaders. 1 Peter 2.5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're exploring the fourth zone of discipleship, behind the curtain, where a disciple learns to live as a reconciled self. There are two steps in this area, emotions and transformation. Transformation is illustrated by the tribe of Judah. Even though Judah is in a different time and culture, his life mirrors so many lives today. His life is all right. There's some bad stuff and some good stuff. He rolls with it as best he can. I think a lot of people do that today. Some people have more good, others have more bad. Some people roll with life better, others roll with life worse. Transformation is not a promise to get rid of all of life's difficulties. It is allowing God to work in me so that both the bad and good in life make me into someone better, someone stronger, better attuned to God, better aware of myself, more empathetic to others. When God first creates all of heaven and earth, the relationships between humans and God and all of creation is very good. But since disobedience and death enter the world, people have to work hard for mostly okay lives. But God doesn't call me to live a mostly okay life. Jesus said in John 10.10, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Transformation is not about changing other people or my situation. Transformation is God changing me to become all I am supposed to be in Jesus Christ, which allows me to respond differently and rightly to all the externals of life, good or bad. The character trait that Judah had to work through was fear. The specific character trait that God may want to work on me or you may be different, but Judah is afraid. Specifically, Judah fears death, so he demonstrates a universal human condition. In Genesis 3.19, God tells the man, You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, for since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. In other words, man is going to work hard just to maintain a mostly okay life, but at some point, and you don't know when, you're going to die, and your body will return to the ground. God formed man from clay and breathed life into him. But one day the breath will leave and the man will return to clay. In Exodus 14, the Israelites complain to Moses because they fear they will die in the wilderness. In Numbers 13, the Israelites are afraid to go into the promised land because they fear they will be killed by the inhabitants of Canaan. In 1 Samuel 17, the Israelites are afraid to fight Goliath because they don't want to die. Many Psalms cry out to God to preserve the singer's life. In Isaiah 37 and 38, King Hezekiah fears death from King Shennacherib of Assyria. And after God rescues Israel from Assyria, Hezekiah then fears death from his own sickness. If God calls his people from death to life, John 5:24 and 1 John 3:14, how does a person live that out or any other transformation? Let's look at Judah, beginning with the story of Joseph. Joseph is in the well and his brothers want to kill him. 
In Genesis 37, 26-27, Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. Judah, like Reuben, is not concerned with the interests of Joseph or his father, but his concern is the blood guilt he would have by killing someone. The punishment for murder is death, and Judah doesn't want to die. So he convinces his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah escapes death that day. But death follows this man's family around like a bad odor. In Genesis 38, we have the story of Judah's family. Judah has gone off on his own, away from his father's camp, and he marries a Canaanite woman. He has three sons with this woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Life is going well. He's not arguing with his brothers or his father. He's gaining his own wealth. He has a wife and three sons. Fantastic. His eldest son, Ur, becomes old enough to marry, so he finds a a Canaanite wife for him, Tamar. Here's where life starts to go bad. Genesis 38, 6-8. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. This is the law of leveret marriage. It was important to keep family lines going. So it was Onan's job as the second son to have a son with his sister-in-law. That son would legally be the son of his older brother. However, this makes complications for Onan, because this son, when he is born, would also be his first son. This could mean that this son might inherit all of Ur's inheritance and all of Onan's. Onan wanted his possessions for his own future son, so he did not want to get Tamar pregnant, at least before he had his own wife and son. God doesn't approve of this selfishness. Genesis 38.10 What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Now Judah has two dead sons and no grandchildren. Even though it's his sons that were wicked, he thinks it might be Tamar that is cursed with these deaths. It's not Tamar's fault, but Judah's actions will make it look like it's her fault. The youngest son, Shelah, is too young to get married or fulfill the leveret marriage obligation. So Judah tells Tamar to wait until Shelah grows up, then Shelah can give her a son. But Judah, in his fear of death, never lets Shelah marry Tamar. After a time, Judah's wife dies. Now he's all alone and grieving again. Some more time passes, and Judah takes a trip to go shear his sheep. During this trip, he passes through the town of Timnah. Feeling lonely, he seeks comfort with a prostitute. He promises the prostitute a goat from his flock as payment, but she's no dummy and asks for collateral. The prostitute asks for his seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. These items are his identification and livelihood. His seal is like his driver's license and signature. It's a cylinder Judah would use to make a contract. The cord was put through the cylinder and people would wear them around their necks. 
And as a shepherd, Judah's staff was his work tool, weapon, and perhaps mark of authority as head of his family. There is no modern equivalent to these items, but the closest things for me would be taking my wallet with my driver's license and bank cards, my cell phone, and my wedding ring. Judah must be pretty lonely, so he agrees, sleeps with the woman, and leaves his collateral, and quickly goes to get the goat as payment so he can retrieve his stuff. He doesn't return personally, instead sending a friend as a messenger with the payment. But the messenger returns to Judah saying he can't find the prostitute, and everyone he asked said that there was never a prostitute in Timnah. Uh Uh-oh, Judah just got his identity stolen. Judah tells his friend, let's just keep this whole episode a secret, or everyone will laugh at me because I've lost my seal, cord, and staff by sleeping with a prostitute. Genesis 38:24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. Like today, prostitution was both common and a crime. In addition, even though Tamar is a widow, Getting pregnant outside of a marriage sanctioned by Judah is adultery, a sin punishable by death. Judah now has the chance that he's been looking for to get this woman cursed with death out of his household. He's going to be a death dealer instead of receiver. It's not the best solution, but it's how he chooses to get by in a bad situation. This is me taking my life of clay and trying to make something. I'm no artist, but I was given some clay at a workshop and told to make a bowl. What I made was pretty sad. It works, but and mine was probably better than some other people's work, and it's probably worse than some other people's work. It's like doing life on my own. Without a skilled artist to assist or guide me, I take the good and the bad and try and make something. When Tamar comes to be executed, she sends Judah a message with evidence that he should see. Genesis 38, 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her intimately again. Tamar was the person pretending to be a prostitute because someone in Judah's family was legally supposed to give her a son so she would not be homeless and her husband's name would continue. Judah hadn't kept his pledge because he was afraid of death. This trick was Tamar's way of calling him to account. Judah publicly confesses his sin, and from this point on, Judah doesn't fear death. We all need some transformation. While the initial transformation comes with faith and being included in God's covenant, new covenant, we all have additional areas in our lives that need God's transformative touch. For Judah, it was that fear of death, but death to life is just the beginning being born again, initial sanctification. For those of us who have already moved from fear of death to truly living life, God may have another transforming work for me. I have to give up my life of slavery 
to sin in order to be a firstborn child of God, of selfish protection in order to be a person of love, of personal rights in order to be a person of peace. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Galatians 5, 19-25. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. With my raw material clay, I have to keep it wrapped up airtight. Otherwise, it will dry up and become useless dirt. God is the artist who can take the clay and make a vessel. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Just as God breathed life into lifeless clay, God breathes life into lifeless me and makes me into more than I can make myself. That's transformation from bondage to freedom. In a disciple's life, there may be multiple times of transformation. In Genesis 42, 33-38, Judah and his brothers must return to Egypt to buy more food. They can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. Reuben makes his dumb offer to their father, If I don't bring Benjamin back, then kill my children. That offer is rejected. But Judah, who no longer fears death, also makes a proposition to his father. Genesis 43, 8-10 Then Judah said to his father, Israel, Send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Whereas Reuben offered the life of his children, Jacob's grandchildren, Judah was willing to offer his own life. In this new moment of transformation, Judah trusts God for his life instead of trusting himself. Jacob recognizes this and not only entrusts Benjamin to Judah, but later gives Judah the blessing of the firstborn. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. 
Judah, your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or lioness. Who dares to arouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes to the obedience of the peoples belonging belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Niftali is the doe to describe fruitfulness. Issachar is a donkey because he works hard for the sheep for the flock. Benjamin is a wolf because he feeds and shares. Judah is a lion because he rules. Revelation 5, 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Who's that lion? The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 2-3 tells us, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Hebrews seven fourteen. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah. Judah is blessed to defeat his enemies, and it is the descendant of Judah, Jesus, who fulfills the promise to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3 and defeat death. The kingship will never depart from Judah because Jesus reigns forever and all will one day kneel in obedience to him. Jesus calls himself the vine in John 15, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem as king on a donkey. The washing of his clothes in wine and robes in the blood of grapes refers to the new covenant that Jesus institutes at Passover with the drinking of wine and the sacrifice of his blood. Yet despite sacrificing his blood, he will be the healthiest of humans. Resurrected Jesus is no longer subject to death. Romans 6, 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. How does God transform me from ordinary life to royal life? The exact process is probably unique for each person, but I think Judah and Jesus do give us an important clue. Brokenness. Judah didn't want to be humiliated, but through Tamar, his pride was broken. Before Jesus was raised in glory, he went through the humiliation of crucifixion. Transformation from freedom to power also often involves brokenness. From a surface viewing, a broken vessel is no longer useful. But it is only through brokenness that the art of kintsugi can occur. Kintsugi is the art of taking a broken vessel and restoring it with gold. There's no gold kintsugi without the vessel first being broken. There would be no royal Judah if he wasn't first humbled. There is no resurrected King Jesus without Jesus the dead sacrifice. I don't know what feeling a caterpillar has, but I wonder if a caterpillar is afraid before it goes into its chrysalis. A caterpillar's metamorphosis is its body being completely taken apart and then put back together. It must give up its life as a caterpillar to become a butterfly. These chrysalis times are part of the process of sanctification. 
maybe even entire sanctification. Not every time of brokenness is a complete destruction. For me, submitting to my call to ministry was a time of transformation. Also, becoming a father was a time of transformation. In each case, I gave up something I was or wanted or a protection I sought in order to become more myself in the image of God. Sometimes Wesleyans or other Christians wrongly label entire sanctification, what John Wesley called Christian perfection, as this one-time event where I now do no wrong, and that's incorrect. It's not that I become sinlessly perfect, but I do become mature and whole, motivated by perfect love. I am perfect as I can be today, and I can be more perfect tomorrow. Every disciple can be transformed to this firstborn status. Hebrews 12:22-24 Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Jesus calls every disciple to his kingdom, and everyone can be called. Tamar, the Canaanite, is in the royal tribe of Judah. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, is in the royal tribe of Judah. Caleb's clan might be descendants of Edomites, but they are in the royal tribe of Judah. Ruth, the Moabite, is in the royal tribe of Judah. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Judah feared death, but became the royal messianic line. A disciple obtains a rose quartz stone after a transformation, entire sanctification experience, where the disciple's life has reached a more mature level of living in perfect love. Our prayer today is taken from Psalm 15. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. Yet without your sacrifice and your transforming power, none of us are worthy to live on your holy mountain. We thank you for Jesus, the Son of God and descendant of Judah, who first ascended this mountain for us and calls us by his blood to join him. May we seek the holiness and wholeness, maturity and perfection that you call us to, that we may live and rule with you as humanity was called to be in the beginning. In Jesus' name, amen. Go forth to live as disciples, serving God with your whole being, knowing that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great exploits in God's name.